0: Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. welcome back. It's another gloomy Thursday in Bushwick. Yeah, we two weeks in a row, like warm and raining and weird weather. Anyway, just give a shout out to um, a restaurant I went last week after the show, Faro. F-A-R-O. It's the Jefferson Stop, L train, Bushwick. Incredible restaurant, really great. Husband-wife team, super, super, super. I'm going to go back again, um, but I got to give them kudos. I'll have them on in December, I think, at some point. But the guy's nuts. He brings in all New York State flour, brings in his own grains, whole grains from in and grinds them in the restaurant for his bread, for his pasta. Um, makes his fresh pasta program. So he's got leftover egg whites, so he does a lot of baking of vegetables in a dough you make with egg whites, salt, uh, and flour. It's just crazy. So, I mean, eventually, like the whole place was great, and the wife's in the front of the house. I love that. We've got a great show today. We have three guests in the studio. Alice Firing is going to be my first guest. We're going to talk about nothing but natural wine. What else would we talk about? And then I've got um, Chef Ali, Alessandra Altieri, who is the – I'm going to, like, screw up her title, but she's, like, basically the head – baker person for all the Bouchon bakeries in the country and we have two in New York and they're amazing I remember when the time Warner One opened up like wow finally like a great bakery like a real, like it's Thomas Keller opens up like a retail bakery seriously um, it's so good uh, and I've got one in Rock Center and Vegas and a couple of, anyway she's going to talk about what it's like to juggle all those balls and how she got in the business because she's a great story too and then I've got a restaurateurs coming in uh, they're, they're, they're there now but they're going to be my last guests because they're late um, ha ha uh not Florentino and his chefs from Il Gatto Pardo and the Leopard will be the third guest. So we'll talk about wine, pastry, and restaurants in that order. Alice, always a pleasure. So let's let's give a shout out because you, I mean, I've known you over the years because you've written
1: how many books? Oh, God. You know, I always say I've only written two, but when I think about it, I've written four. And by 2007, it'll be six.
0: Okay. But that's but right. At this point 2017. Four. Yeah, yeah, because you've got one. We're not going to talk about that yet, but we are right. going to talk about that at some point. Because I heard rumor of that.
1: Right. We can we can hint about it, but the Georgian book comes out in March.
0: So I had so speak. So but you and, but you've had a newsletter. So let's shill the newsletters. Talk to me about how people can find it because you know, I mean, you could buy these wine magazines. Who does? I mean, honestly, I guess people read Wine Spectator. They must, um, or Parker, but he's not really involved anymore. But that's like whatever. Or then you can just—I guess—Food and Wine is what's his name writes for them, and then Letty Teague writes for the Wall Street Journal. But yours is great. It's a point of view, and you're really—you've been a proponent of natural wines since Jump Street.
1: Yeah, it's—and there actually there there are—they're kind of pathetically few wine magazines in this country. And you get way more in Germany and England and France, for God's sakes, Italy. But here there's really, um, for an independent voice, there's pretty much nothing. Blogs, there are blogs, but those are in magazines. There's Punch online. They do drinks. But yeah, I feel like there's nobody doing what I'm doing.
0: How do people find out about your newsletter? Where do they go?
1: People go to my website. Um, So you go to Alice Firing, A-L-I-C-E F-E-I-R-I-N-G dot com backslash newsletter. Or is it slash? I can't remember. Or just Google Alice Firing Newsletter or TFL.
0: It's great. It's so good. It's so good. And just to tease you, Thanksgiving's coming up next week. Drum roll. So in your most recent newsletter, you have, and I love this, you have like... Twenty some wines that are under twenty dollars, or like from like thirteen to twenty two. I don't even know what this cap was, Mm -hmm. but the criteria is my price range. That's a criteria for people like us to drink wine every day. um, The good news is in New York, you can go into stores like Flatiron and Chambers and others, and there's a plethora of great wine, mostly from Europe, in that price range. It's superb, mostly from Europe. Mostly from Europe, but you've got these great profiles of the wine, great descriptions, who the importer is, sometimes who the retailer is. In the case of Chambers Street, sometimes it's it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're great great wines, interesting choice for Thanksgiving. Yeah. So that would be if you went today and signed up and got the newsletter. Exactly. A good reason.
1: Yeah, this was my second my second annual Icano Plus issue, and I started it last year because I don't know, did you notice this tremendous price increase in wines last year?
0: I noticed like my favorite, like I was at the Gamay Harvest in 05 and I've mm-hmm. been a Beaujolais crew proponent right. forever. And I used to like I mean this I mean kudos to them, but it used to be like the high end was eighteen to twenty four to twenty five mm-hmm. and now it's like twenty five to forty. I'm like, what happened? The that, euro's gotten that, like like you know what's what's going on here?
1: That's exactly it. The euro has gotten' it's weaker. We've gotten weaker, yeah. and our wine prices have gotten stronger in this country. and i I just kind of threw my hands up. and I realized a few years before that, just two years before that, I was asked by the New York Times to do, a, a list of wines under 11, and I said, not going to be able to do that. That's so tough. Can't That's do really it. That's really tough. Give me 15. Um, and so they gave me 15, and I realized I could not do that today, what I did then. And it yeah. wasn't that long ago. So I said, you know, and to hell with this 20, let's go for 18 and under, and really making it tough for me. So, really, the cutoff point is $18. And I was really pleased with what I found, and I did bring my cheat sheet because we're I. We're going to talk about it. Thing. And I
0: knew you were coming. So last night, I had a bottle of wine. Um, I had a quick dinner, I had to go out, and I was having fish, and I have like a refrigerator full of wine, and another, like, I have more I have more wine than I don't know. I was just. I have too much wine, and I I should just drink more. Anyway, it was... How do you pronounce this grape? It's it's a Georgian wine. C-H-A-R-D-A-K-H-I.
1: Okay, well, that's the region. Chidaki. That's the region.
0: R-K-A-S-T-S-I-T-E-L. Oh,
1: Ricazzatelli.
0: That's the grape? That's the grape. That's the grape. Yeah. I I- think- and it was I- Iago's wine. And how I guess did you he-
1: get the Ricazzatelli? I haven't... He only does that... Wow, how did you get that one? He really makes... Primarily makes Chinuri. He does make a little bit of a cazzatelle, though. It's
0: don't ask me. I don't keep notes on where I buy them. Yeah. I, but I shop. I mean, I mean, it's either Chambers, Flatiron, right. Right. Manhattan Wine Company, sometimes Jean Luc Leduc. So it's one of those four okay. suspects.
1: Okay, because he mostly makes Chinuri. It is about forty-five, about a half an hour outside of Tbilisi. Of course, unless you've been there, these. Cities mean nothing. Mean nothing
0: to me. They did, they did, and you've been six times.
1: Yeah, I've been six times. Because
0: they've been making wine in Georgia since like the beginning of time.
1: Yeah. It's probably exactly. some of the
0: earliest winemaking exactly. on planet Earth. Exactly. And what killed me about this wine so it's dry, it's white, it seemed like it was probably bio, although I can't say it didn't seem like it was played with much. I'm not sure if it was sulfured at all. But the thing that was like floored me was like mushrooms. And I don't mean truffles. I mean like mushrooms, like Champignon de mm-hmm. no Like it smelled and tasted like mushrooms. I'm like, huh. that's crazy. That's crazy. I know. And then, But then I read someone else tasting notes. Like I went this morning, I'm like Googled it because I'm like, I'm like, this is nuts. Why do I keep getting it? At? It wasn't one of those phenolic things that blew off or disappears. It was just mm-hmm. the whole bottle of wine was this distinct or, around everything else, around the sort of minerality and the fruit was just mushrooms front and center. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. crazy. Talk about he, how he makes his wines.
1: Well, uh, Yago is the very first certified organic producer in, in Georgia and he's actually the very first um, Garagiste, or independent winemaker that is a full-time winemaker in Georgia. So that's pretty exciting, and he's a fantastic guy. Now, how does he make his wine? Because he traditionally. uses
0: these cre- the things. Yeah,
1: very traditional, so he's going to use extended skin contact. Basically, he, he foot-trod the grapes. Uh, the grapes flow into these buried amphora called quaveri.
0: That's the word, quaveri. Which and, are these ceramic? Which is...
1: Uh, yeah, it's, and they've been uh, making pottery. Like, it's, pottery. Yeah. it's pottery. It's yeah.
0: underground. So the lid is on the top and the rest mm. of it's down, which helps for temperature control. Exactly. So the you grapes would, go down there with the yeast that's naturally occurring on the skin. Totally. It's grape juice, with so the natural yeast, right. foot crush, boom, 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 gravity fed in. Yep,
1: gravity on, fed so in. So it's,
0: it's on skin and it's leaves. It's on its skin on leaves.
1: For, uh, for, I think he does six months of skin contact. <laughs> and then it is siphoned off. Into really, really scooped off, put into another quevery, and then stays there till bottling.
0: That and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's
1: period. That's incredibly simple way of wine making. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> really, <laughs> really neat. it really is cool. It really is. There's and there is no sulfur except some sulfur to clean the quevery with. That was it.
0: So none for stabilization post bottling. Nothing. That's crazy. I mean, that's really. It's. But we we we'll, we've talked about that. We'll talk about that more and more. Um Tell me about... So, among these lists of wines that you had for under 20, tell me about this one, La Colombier. So, it's mm. Fontaine Reserve. What? Where? Where? The, the grapes were Negrette, Syrah, and Cap Franc.
1: Right. So, what do I have on that price? 13 bucks.
0: 12 I think. No, it's 2012. I don't know. I didn't write the price down. It was down.
1: either 12 or 13 Um I was stunned by this one. It got this at Chambers. Uh, it was... It's a fairly newish winemaker, and they're making wine that's biodynamically, organically. I don't think they're certified in biodynamics. And the wine had searing acidity, absolutely amazing acidity. And I was a little confused by the acidity. And when I'm confused by a wine, it was like, hmm, it's so bright. And I never think of wines from Fronton as having that kind of acidity. In fact, because of the soils, which is... Uh, very gravelly, they tell me that their wines usually have a very high pH, which turns into a lower acid wine. Right, usually you think th- of
0: clay and acid or other soil types.
1: Exactly, exactly. But they said no, and just this one they pick at the right moment, so they preserve the acidity. And I found what was shocking about this, what was intriguing, and then also very delicious, was this balance of this high acidity and very lush fruit, and an earthy, savory rosemary and wild quality that didn't quit. It had a very, very long life. This one. And those
0: are usually things that you're not going to find at, in the same at that glass. price. And at that price.
1: At that right. price. I right. mean, this was a serious wine at that price, and I went, "Whoa!" Totally made me do a double take. And I nursed it over five days, and it kind of gave up the ghost at day five.
0: But that's. I mean. That's extraordinary. Yeah, that's. That's crazy, and you could be, so you could buy this at Chamber Street.
1: Chamber Street, yeah, yeah David.
0: I mean that whole store. I mean, if you needed, if there was one wine store on Planet Earth, it's, there are left. Other,
1: Yeah, that is a great store. It's, it's
0: the great the, one.
1: The wine, actually, I did find out that brought in by MFW, mm. and they do have other cuvées, and I can't wait to taste them. Very yeah, interesting. They've wine got a makers. great
0: portfolio. I keep seeing that.
1: And Fraton. you know, I love Negrette. It used a little simple country grape nigrette.
0: Tell me about this wine. It was towards the end. Sylvan Bach, ah. fourteen neck, neck, Grenache Noir. So, tell me about the wine. But then I really want to talk about how it's made because I kind of want to bore down on this idea of of, of you know.
1: Oh, okay. So I'm an old guy
0: that's drinking wine, and I've been to uh, wine regions during the crush. We just got back from Bordeaux. We were in mm-hmm. Bordeaux in September. We did know, We've done Gamay. Uh, we did. We were in Alsace, not during the crush. We were in Alsace and Cellars tasting in May. We were in, on Mount Etna in June. I mean, I just I just I love to do this. And I've tasted like grape juice. I mean, like so amazing. So like it's still it's still, like alchemy to me. Like you're growing these grapes, and, and really good wines just made mm-hmm. on the vine. That's where it's made. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not – it's just not – Messed with afterwards. Right. right? And, and, but I've tasted like the juice off the crush and it tastes like grape juice it's like there's nothing spectacular about it when you're literally tasting it and then it's just this thing starts to happen with fermentation how the fermentation's done under mm. what conditions mm-hmm. under what gases mm-hmm. is their skin is their stem is it carbonic is it oxidative i mean we can talk about chinon forever in the loire how many right. iterations you're going to get from that one mm-hmm. grape varietal based on soil but so tell me about how this wine is made because this is really interesting
1: so you get a lot of this kind of geeky conversation in the firing line. So, and what we're talking about is... <laughs> if you don't, don't
0: is, like this, hang If you don't like this, yeah, stay I'll tuned. Like, we'll talk about pastry next.
1: It's right. <laughs> like about carbonic maceration. What is carbonic maceration? Right. So it turns out in this village in Ardèche called Valvinière, which is about a half an hour from the Valence train station, you feel, for me, it feels like I'm going into this little Brigadoon-like reality. Life stops, and inside, just this band of really natural winemakers who ha- take it to another fervent step, almost, um, you know, like they kind of have a guru, and the guru is Jacques Neaport and he used to be Jules Chauvet's right-hand guy. So... They all up there make wine in a certain way, which is a pretty religious kind of carbonic maceration. Carbonic maceration is basically when there's an enzymatic conversion of sugar to alcohol that happens inside of the grape right. instead of conventionally outside of the grape.
0: And we think of this, I mean, my first time seeing it was in Beaujolais, where it was mm-hmm. really pretty much commonplace. To see whole grape clusters, just that's, there's no destemming. Uh, there's no crushing of those grapes, which right. you see kind of everywhere else as standard Burgundian style or Bordeaux style. So you have whole grape clusters that are just thrown into stainless steel or cement, and the weight of the grapes themselves crushes the ones on right. the bottom. So they'll have naturally occurring yeast on them. The fermentation starts with them, mm-hmm. throws off some CO2 right. as a byproduct, which creates this veil. Essentially. Um, And then, yeah, and then you have this sort of microbe, like, fermentation taking place. Enzymatic. Enzymatic fermentation taking place within the whole clusters that sit on the top.
1: Yeah, which is probably the way we first found out that magic can happen to grape because <laughs> right. all of a sudden you have right. the birds uh, getting drunk or people, if they they drink it on the vine or have a grape from the vine that actually fermented. And within carbonic, there are all different ways. Now, the way they do it in Beaujolais is usually semi-carbonic. Right. Good. Some,
0: go ahead. Keep going.
1: So, and even in semi-carbonic, there are some variations. So you can pump in. So actually, it usually starts by pumping in CO2 in a closed environment. And uh, depending on how many days, sometimes, well, in the Beaujolais, you don't go through the end of fermentation. After about five days, you'll take it out, put in a vat, and it continues fermenting, uh, usually still on the skin's in a different vessel. Now, the way, very few people do a full carbonic, and the way they usually work in the Ardèche, in this one little village, is full carbonic. Meaning, every day, the wine is extracted from the bottom of the tank and put in another tank. And that happens until the end of fermentation.
0: And the reason is, otherwise, you're not going to, if they don't do that, it's could it's be high, really hard to get the alcohol high enough. You're really not making wine, right?
1: Well, it, no, the, the way it's, that's not really about the alcohol, alcohol, but it is... Why do they do it? They purity? feel it's purity. Purity. It's the most pure way to have the least intervention. Because every day you're taking out the wine, and it is finishing its fermentation in somewhere else, but is just very gradual, very gradual. So... And what you usually get from that kind of fermentation is a very fruity...
0: That's the point of it all. And you think of the, the like Gamay classic, that fruit-driven, Same. high-toned fruit, just... Right. Uh, although, we're saying that, although there are, even within, um, I think, Jean-Paul Brun, there's a few Beaujolais vinters that are making Burgundian-style yeah. Gamay, yeah. Yeah. which is crushed from the beginning.
1: Crushed from the beginning, but even Burgundy used to make... Uh, Beaujolais-like style, where at least it was full cluster and, you know, so not distemmed, full cluster, no CO2, but that always gives, whenever you have a full cluster and whole berries, you get those partial aromatics, heightened cinnamon, rosy aromatics. So, you know, there. even if you're working naturally, there are a million different decisions to make, and that's up to the vigneron to figure out how they're going to do it.
0: Yes, so, I mean it's Pescaline had a, a Loire valley I don't want to call it a seminar it was an hour and a half tasting at Manhattan Wine Company last week in in time she had one this summer that I literally drove from Cape May to Racine for lunch because she was doing a cab franc tasting and I drove home. So seven hours in my car because well, Pascaline's well, a Pascaline's goddess.
1: Worth it. She's the best. <laughs> and if she's talking
0: about Loire, do you like just it's like, like Pascaline unplugged, just like to let her go. Um, mm-hmm. So she was she did a tasting and it was so I, I, I was at a cab franc seminar that she did. So that's the course of the red one of the red grape varietals uh, that's sort of synonymous with Loire Valley winemaking and of course. Chenablanc's the other one, so this tasting was a mix of both. But like the, more I learn, the more I taste, the less, so it seems like the less familiar I get, the less certain I am about anything in, in, in wine. Like the Loire Valley, I thought I kind of had Saumer and, and, mm-hmm. and Chinal and Burgoyle. It's kind of parsed out, and I'm like, no, no way. Like it just depends on the winemaker and the decisions that they're making and are, the, whether that year. Yeah. And,
1: I'm the same way. The more I know, the more I absolutely do not know. It's incredibly frustrating. I feel like can I just go back twenty years and really start learning about wine all over again?
0: <laughs> so let's talk. Let's let's go back because I wanted to. You know, we, your last point about the tasting notes, where things come from, that idea that you're getting this you know, high toned fruit, and so this is sometimes we think of like clove and nutmeg, and certainly cocoa and vanilla. Is coming from oak. I mean, that's kind of a classic mm-hmm. Amer- American oak, more maybe easier, to easier. It's slightly less dense than French oak. The wood's not as old. The trees aren't as old. But, um, yeah, I mean, so if there's oak being used, you're definitely going to get flavor components that are coming directly from the oak. We know that. But but then, you like, we're talking about a wine that never sees oak here that's got right. all of these. Th- so these are like phenolic compounds, terpenes. What are they?
1: Well, for that, we're going to need... Um to come here and use really, really super technical, but um, they are phenolic, they are terpenes. Right. Right. It is, and you can argue whether anything is coming from the soil or not, but certainly well, this is there's a question. I mean, this, this is this,
0: my, this is like this, r- the rhetorical question: Where is it coming from?
1: Well, up in the Ardesh, there there is some limestone. There's some basalt as well. Um, it and. The effect of the soil is going to probably have the most effect on the acidity and the structure as opposed to the actual flavors. Correct.
0: Because we, I mean, it's sort of, we kind of know now that, or or they say that you can't, I mean, so wine's grown on slate or wine's grown on Mm -hmm. granite or wine's grown on chalky soil.
1: Right, which is exactly, as you know, the nature of... The book that I'm supposed to be working on this very second instead of to being leak
0: here. That out. You're not supposed <laughs> to leak that out. We're going to keep that secret. But, we, but th- they tell us we can't taste that. But yeah. then I'm just almost thinking it's like microbial terroir. Like but there, Sometimes, I mean, you can. it seems like it's present in the mouth. Well, it seems I think, like it's coming from the I ground.
1: think that probably the easiest thing to feel and actually to taste, I know that I can taste a heavy clay soil in a, in a, in a wine. It's, there's this cherry-like density um, that is unmistakable to me, and there's a certain acidity, I don't think, really flavor on a granitic soil. Mm. But I also know for basalt, especially really heavy-duty volcanic basalt, I get an ashy quality. You get smoke on the
0: nose. I mean, you just get it. I mean, yeah. I was just on Mount Etna three months ago, or four months ago, right. tasting wine and super volcanic, black volcanic soil ring the whole mm. way around, and you know those wines are sort of. And some of the island wines are just unmistakable. Right. You pour them in a the glass, and this isn't. I'm not talking about sulfur. I'm talking about like smoky, flinty mm. notes of, mm. and it doesn't blow off. It doesn't go away. These aren't right. like. It's crazy.
1: And one the thing that really brought Mount Etna home to me in this in this does the tour matter? If you uh, taste Frank Cornelison's. Yes. Wine next to his grappa, next to his olive oil, that all come from the same soils. You're going to get a certain similarity, especially on the finish, on all of them. And where does that come from? And, of course, it's very, very fancy to have scientists just spend a lot of time trying to debunk the myth of the soil. And, like, it seems a very evil thing to do. <laughs> it's
0: bullshit. There's, if you it don't believe bullshit. in terroir, stick with beer and vodka. Do, yeah. do us all a favor. Don't but, drink wine.
1: But Anyway, but but I absolutely believe that it has a great deal to do. Of course it does, because the reason that Georgia peaches, it's not only yeah. the climate, but it's the soil, or why are the tomatoes better in certain certain parts of New York than others, certain parts of New Jersey than other It's soil.
0: You had a really nice, you had a good shout out to Bordeaux here. This... Hey, bon Hom, whatever the wine is called. Yeah. Right? From the Cote de Blaye, Itty Peak. Cab Franc, Malbec. And again, Chambers Street, $13 a bottle. $13. How do they do it? Like, how can you... Ex- I mean, I don't understand how that... I mean, cork costs money. Labels cost money. Glass costs money. Well, a container costs money.
1: Chambers, when they do their direct imports, what they're doing is cutting out the middle guy. And we have this egregious system in this country, the third t- three-tier system, and I know what people are getting, exceller, which means at the cellar door in France. And so a lot of people go specifically looking for wines that they can buy for four or five euros a bottle, which is crazy. And then you see those same wines on the shelf for 25 and $30. The, the winemaker isn't getting that. So at least um, Chamber Street takes a reasonable markup yeah. and their cost. And, you know, if we had more people working that way and we could get rid of one of the middlemen, we would see more prices like that. So it, right now, you go to France, you go to Italy, you pay one thing, you come here and you go, oh my God, it didn't used to be that way. There used to be a much narrower margin.
0: Interesting. And he does. I mean, I've been, I, he's got a, 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 a gamete, it's from Beaujolais, but I don't think they call it Beaujolais on the label because the guy doesn't want to deal with the whole AOC thing. Yeah. But it's, he imports it and he's selling this like, this bio gamet for like $18 a bottle. It's so delicious. Ducroux? De yeah I guess like a handwritten kind of like artsy kind of label. Oh, that Don't was ask me. I, I know what that, that is.
1: Yeah. It's but-
0: not doesn't make much and the name doesn't make sense. The name is like a like a noun or a verb or oh, something. Right. in Yeah, it's
1: Ven France kind of thing.
0: Yeah, but it's but we know what it is. Hundred percent gambay from Beaujolais, it's right. why the guy doesn't want to doesn't want to deal with a whole AOC like F U, whatever. Right. Just, I'm making wine. I'll call it I'll name it after my dog or my right. child or something and it's delicious. And he brings it in and he sells it for nothing. Give us a shout out again for the newsletter. It's a great right before Thanksgiving, go there. I mean just for this reason alone It'll give you like so many choices yeah. at a great price point, and
1: it's a really good gift. How about go. that? Did I give it out myself a plug? The firing line. Uh, well, go to alicefiring right. Hit the newsletter, or Google Alice Firing newsletter, and eight issues a year, and it's really, really good bathroom reading.
0: It's great yeah. reading. Period. She's got a great <laughs> voice. It's she's been a proponent of natural wine since before it had a category name. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so pleasure. much for coming out. We're yeah. gonna have to do dinner between now and Christmas. Yes, At we some are. point, or Hanukkah, whatever the holiday yeah. of choice is. New in thread December. on the Gmail We both, thing. we, we, we could walk to the middle, meet on the Bowery somewhere, maybe Rebel or something. Patrick okay. will have fun with us. Yes. We're the new chef at Pearl and Ash. Maybe that's an idea. That they is. got a new kid at Pearl and Ash.
1: They're really right around the corner for I know. We should do that. All convenient. right, thank you, okay, Alex We're
0: not going to take any breaks. Liz, we don't need to take a break, so we're not going to take any breaks. We're going to go straight to my next guest, because she's in the studio. She's been so quiet this whole time. Ollie, can I call you Ollie? How, would you, how do you prefer to be called? All right. All, All right. You got to just get really good. You, know, you can Ooh. sit anywhere you want. Just get close to that microphone. That's the you secret. You call me Allie
2: or Alessandra. All right. Alessandra.
0: I want to call you Alessandra for the time being. Um, are you into wine? Was that like thoroughly boring?
2: Um, no, that was actually really interesting because I don't have very much knowledge of wine, so that was very educational.
0: You're just saying that?
2: No, I'm really okay, serious. Thank you. I, was, I, I didn't really know you're really in.
0: quiet, and I'm like, this has got to be. I you're was like, it You're all on in. the wine bus, or you're not. And like, my son is totally into wine now. You uh, haven't met him yet, but he started. He moved to New York two years ago. He's been eating it with me, of course. You know, you like, get dragged into the Darth Vader lifestyle <laughs> of going to restaurants and <laughs> slurping around, and st- and he knows, and he's just so he's like obsessed with wine. Like, 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 like the, I think one of the greatest days of his life. Um besides n- n- his girlfriend when she moved in with him. Um was he got to have dinner with Pascaline Latier, who's a master psalm. Oh wow. She's at Rouge Tama. Pascaline's an old friend of mine. She's a genius. She's brilliant. And when Sean got to have dinner with Pascaline and I, he was just like, all of the questions that were unanswered in the oh, wine world he got awesome. to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. They sat next to each other and we got blind tasted and he was he's still talking about it. Anyway, congratulations. This is so cool. So I got to meet you um I mean I've known Thomas i known him. I've known of him. I remember we kind of were about the same age. So I remember when he was in New York at various restaurants. Of course, Raquel was the last step with Tom Calicchio in the kitchen before he went out west and before he opened French Laundry. Then we filmed at the French Laundry. And right when he did the deal with um, Time Warner, it was like literally the same week that that deal hit the newspapers that he was going to be involved with a um, an East Coast restaurant and it was going to be in Time Warner as they were building it out. Um, so we filmed, and Sebastian Roussel was his pastry chef at at the French Laundry. Then he would he would then follow Thomas to New York yep. do the pastry. But I guess what I'm getting at is I've known of Keller Inc. for the longest time. Um, have had a, some of the best meals of my life at Per Se, um, Bouchon Bakeries, is. You can't really argue; it's one of the greatest bakeries in the history of New York City.
2: Thank you, I'll agree. But <laughs> Keller,
0: I mean Thomas, just sort of has this standard. It was like. I always think in my head it's like you know, as a chef, he was probably in his early 30s, and he had gone out to California, and that didn't, the LA thing didn't—that was checkers. It, was, it didn't exactly work out, and you know, Raquel was a tough way to leave New York because it was kind of like, eh, you know, it wasn't yeah. the exclamation point, and it was just like he got to the French Laundry and just just put put the gauntlet down and said fuck it. Like either I'm going to go down fighting this battle one way or I'm just going to quit. I'll just, you oh, know, yeah. I'll, was... I'll move to Hawaii and surf or something.
2: Absolutely. He was very dedicated to his vision. Absolutely. Totally
0: dedicated to the vision. And I remember when we were filming at the French Laundry again, because I'm an older guy and I've gotten the, you know, I mean, as chef, that's all we do is eat, talk about food, dream about food, cook and go out to eat. Yep. And get up and do it again. <laughs> the life. And then like Every summer vacations day. for me and my girlfriend, wife at the time, wife now would be, we would go eat at three star restaurants in France. That's what we did in the 80s, it was just like that's what everybody did. You staged there, you ate there, you had your notebook with pictures of what you what the food looked like, and you came home and you tried to recreate it. Uh, and I remember when we were filming at the French Laundry. I think we were there for a day and a half, my cameraman you know, pulled me over and said, so what do you think? And I said, this is the first three-star Michelin restaurant I've ever seen in America. What he's doing now, Michelin wasn't here then, and honestly, I don't think Michelin I mean, I'm not going to take it away from anybody that's getting Michelin stars, but it's a, glo- it's a global brand now. But I mean, that's standard. What he was doing, I hadn't seen cooking like that done before in America, anywhere. And it extended to the pastry. So, talk about w- what got you into pastry? What drove you into this?
2: Oh, God. I just come from a family that's all about food uh, big Italian family. My grandmother always cooked, my mom always cooked. Um, And I always found myself in the kitchen. I was just – it was surrounded my life. It's no different than it is right now. Um, I really – not much has changed. And a big part of it was my mom is Christmas time. It is literally 30 different kinds of cookies, um, six dozens of each kind. I mean my house is just a cookie factory. Um, And it's just what I wanted to do. I I would probably say I knew relatively early on. I would probably say freshman, sophomore year in high school I was set. Um, And baking. In baking. baking. I knew what I was going to do. Pastry chef. Always pastry. Never was that interested in savory.
0: So, I get out of high school. Any college?
2: Uh, went right to culinary school.
0: White CIA, Johnson, uh,
2: Restaurant school at Walnut Hill College. Really tiny school in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, that's really tiny. Yeah, I mean, like, you're, so, you're out from outside of Philly? No.
2: Um, no, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. That's what I thought. Um,
0: but you just you ended up there. That's funny. It that, was a
2: school that okay. just piqued my interest for okay. some reason. Yeah.
0: And at a school... So you did a baking major there?
2: Baking major. I went for my associates. Okay. Uh, I worked while I was in school. I was working for Steven Starr at Continental, East Jones, um, right across from Morimoto. Right, right. Yep, that's where I was. Um, came home uh, pretty much you know, relaxed in the summer. Quite honestly, my parents told me I had to go get a real job. I couldn't just bake at a home. <laughs> and I started looking in the city. Uh, first job in the city was with Richard Leach um, at Park Avenue. I was there for, like, two and a half years.
0: Craig Kuketsu was the executive chef, I think.
2: I was still there when... Um, Who was it? Oh, Park Avenue? Park... Uh, oh, my Not Burke.
0: Not Burke. Yes. Who was it? Who was I David Burke.
2: David Burke was wow, still there when I that first was a started. a long time ago. Okay, yeah. okay. So, um And
0: Richard Leach was in it. Was he at Porterhouse with Michael LaMonaco, too?
2: I'm not sure about no. that,
0: actually. I've lost track of him. He's Because he, he's an old-established New York baker. Been around oh, for a long Oh, he's time.
2: phenomenal. Yeah. And it's it's... I had his book before. Yeah, I think I went he worked to, with Charlie yes. Palmer at one point or yeah, something. Yeah, he is extremely talented. He was doing plated desserts that were, in my opinion, far beyond his time during that time. Just the complexity where everyone, it was essentially, you know, chocolate cake, ice cream, call it a day. You know, he introduced the tweels, the sauces, the 17 different items on a plate people weren't doing that then. So um, I learned a ton from him. I, a big part of it is I learned solid work ethic. I mean, he was mm. he was not the chef that gave you your list for mise en place and walked out the door. I mean, he was doing the same amount of mise en place as everybody else. Um, and he it, he was great. So I was there for two and a half years. Um, after that, I, I had always really liked working in a, the bakery aspect of it. Um, and I was like, you know what? I applied to go working at Payard, the original one that was up on 74th. Um, I applied, no answer. I applied again, no answer. So I started dropping off my resume because then I, at that point I was like, I'm going to work there. Damn, I'm, I'm getting a job. Uh, and I think I was annoying enough that I finally got the attention of his assistant. He finally called me in. Um, he pretty much laughed at me that I wanted to work there because he essentially did not think I could hang with Friends, everyone else in the kitchen. Yeah, it's yep. I mean, that's an old
0: guard French. <laughs> oh,
2: absolutely. Absolutely, kitchen. which is- made me even more want to work in that kitchen because mm-hmm. for me, I was not going to I didn't want to hear the idea of I couldn't do it or you didn't think I was tough enough to hang with with, you know, with all the guys it was it was i was essentially the only one that was female and the only one who spoke english so <laughs> Yeah,
0: francois still has his heavy accent to this <laughs> you know, day exactly. i think the longer yeah. he's here the less <laughs> i can understand him yeah. he's a great baker i mean francois Poirier is a oh, baker to the bone extremely talented extremely talented guy uh,
2: extremely talented um so
0: you were how, how many years
2: there i was there for two and a half years about six months in i was able to uh same thing as i had to convince him to take the job there to get the job i Told him I wanted to be a sous chef. Same thing. He laughed at me. He's like, what are you crazy? I was like, I'm telling you, I will be your best damn sous chef. And I was a sous chef for a solid two years there um, until I was like, all right, it's time to it's time to learn, to try to go somewhere else new. You know what I mean? Change this, the scene. But um, How did you
0: get involved with Keller Inc.?
2: That was, so I applied to Per Se. I went from PyR to working at Per Se. Okay. Um, quite honestly, at that point, I just wanted a big change, and I wanted to challenge myself. And I mean, there was no bigger challenge than going to work for per se. Yeah, I mean, um, it's
0: arguably. I mean, on any given day, there are a handful of restaurants that vie for the title of best restaurant in New York yeah. City, and Per Se is on that is is in that list. Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, I, I was at Per Se probably five and a half, six years ago. At that point, I think they were still top ten. Um, in the country they are. The world, I mean, it's, great. it's a great you can't really argue is. I mean yeah.
0: Ryan Sutton can say what he wants in, and I like Ryan he'll be on the radio with me in a few weeks but that that review of Per Se was ridiculous e-
3: yes. unfounded
0: and he's had a thing about Per Se forever that I don't quite understand but w- that's he's the only guy that I, I, you know, I think everyone else is on the same page. It's amazing what they do. It's, it's it is
2: absolutely incredible. From and the front I of the house impressed. to the back
0: of the house, the food's unfucking believable. Uh, the service is like performance art. It's just it's it's an it's extraordinary dining experience. Uh,
2: it's the detail that goes into it yeah. is just something that no one could truly understand. You really, it's just the detail of the food the service. Well we were there we were everything. there a few weeks
0: ago you and I touring the kitchen and yep. we went upstairs and met the bread baker been there French guy Alsatian guy um and he said the bakery basically is running right now 22 hours a day probably going to go to 24 because why bother breaking it down and closing that two hours you could use um and one of the things they were working on while we were there was whoever was in charge of like the cheese tasting menu kind of threw them a curveball he wanted some kind of a bread that night to go with the cheese just something different so it's like that's the kind of shit that they do
2: absolutely that is a regular thing it's uh it's actually the funny little battle of chef you don't understand that these things have to proof and make and you know <laughs> right. it's a savory mentality of we'll just make it you know um it's always ends up being sort of an entertaining battle but it's always you know our head bread baker francois he's he really gets it and he understands it. it's, it's a challenge it's like you know what this is going to be damn impossible to make, but I'm going to do it, yeah. and I'm going to get it done for service, and you're going to have the most unbelievable bread to go with your cheese right. course. And, and it's no's not, not the an standard. answer. Exactly, and S- that's what it is about that culture. But
0: So when you were doing the pastry, per se, Sebastian was the chef, Russell?
2: No. He was, uh, he was gone. He, he was, was Bouchon, at that He point. was Bouchon, yep. Okay. So I, uh, when I started working there, uh, the current pastry chef that is there now, so Elwin Boyle, so he's actually the pastry chef for both technically overseas, uh, per se, and the French Laundry. Um, so he's sort of the executive pastry chef now. So he had been there for about six or eight months. Um, yeah, and it was it was sort of during a, a difficult time. That was a transition. That was probably he was hired from outside. He's English, um, and I was hired from outside, which was really uncommon. Which yeah. is is very uncommon in restaurants. You know, promoting from within is always what's encouraged, you know, it's somebody who's gone through the ranks as a chef de partie and then moved up to a sous chef and up. So it was kind of a funny time. It was essentially, you know, him and I trying to we can do this. Like we we're here. We were hired from outside. It's it, it is what it is and, you know, we're gonna make this pastry department amazing. And it was it was incredible. Yeah, it was uh some and to see him grow and change, also during that experience, he is probably one of the best restaurant pastry chefs that I know by far. He's incredibly talented. So, so
0: your day to day. So at some point, you, you you leave the I don't want to say cocoon of per se, but it is this sort of oasis of yes. culinary <laughs> excellence that I always. You know, when I see guys working, it's like when you work for Alan Dukas in one of his kitchens. You, that you know one of his serious efforts. It's like you're fucked when you leave because you'll never cook like that again anywhere. Yeah. It's like you've gotten so used to a standard that's so high. The bar is set so high and every day you're hitting these marks. And the, and the fact of the matter is there's precious few other places on the planet that, that work like that.
2: Oh, absolutely. The amount of time that you put into something so tiny and individual yeah. and then when you turn around and exactly make the transition from per se and then you go to Bouchon Bakery where you know you're cranking out hundreds if not a thousand cookies a day to you know and everything's on 60 80 quart mixers Correct. where we were right. utilizing stand mixers and mixers right. and every, you know right. it, you, you got to change sort of your mind frame but
0: but to your but to your credit I mean I have to say Bouchon Bakery and you weren't in the beginning involved but I remember like that third floor thing opened up and every morning i work at a new york athletic club so no matter where i was living in new york my day would start at the ac which is around the corner and sometimes if i got on the scale and i was at a weight that i was happy about go which treat yourself <laughs> isn't very often anymore yeah i go over to bouchon and just like have something because you just if you've never been there so on the third floor it's an open floor plan there's a dining room there with there's a there's a hot side to it but the yep. kind of pastry kiosk is just like a I mean, it's not a whole lot of stuff. You have those macaroons that are perfect, the Thomas Keller Oreo, Thomas uh, Keller uh, the butter, sticky buns that sans, just look like, the yeah. things, every single thing that's there is like the best version of it you've ever seen.
2: And that's our ultimate goal, that's, you know, it and, like. and it's something really like what we talked about when we met last week. It's, you know, sometimes it's tempting to try to want to, you know, create the new and exciting thing, but we're, our main focus is making the best of each thing we physically we want to be the best croissant you've ever had we want to be the best chocolate chunk cookie you've ever had and that takes a lot of work and dedication and and a a constant amount of repetition for the staff and then making it over and over again and and it's we always laugh every time we have a new chef to party and they're on cookie station and the chocolate chip cookies look different from the first day they did it to Mm -hmm. two months in you know and we always tell them it's You just see, you sharpen your skills and it's the little things, even though the ingredients are the same and even the mixing speeds are the same and the times are the same, it's just not the same. And that's that's what we really try to promote is... It's not always about the new and exciting thing. It's about just doing the stuff that we do extremely well and constantly trying to make it a little bit better every day. So, How
0: many employees do you oversee? Because you've got the location that I'm familiar with, which is third floor Time Warner, that's busy, busy, busy. And you're doing brunch now, which must be insane and then you open at rock center a neighborhood that i'm i travel through less it's beautiful okay i mean you're right on travel through less yeah but they but it's the center of manhattan i mean it's rockefeller center and in a lot of ways it's the ice rink it's the tree at christmas time um it's it's and it's a beautiful plaza i mean the older i got i think the more i just love the architecture the feeling of that space is a certain linear musical quality to it and you're right on that corner you're in the old right on the corner uh old yep
2: Literally. So you, how many employees?
0: How many people you oversee between all the... And you've got you've got Vegas.
2: Vegas, Beverly Hills, and Yountville and Napa Valley. So um, I'm the corporate pastry chef, so I oversee that. And then also I oversee all the retail operations. So, I mean, Time Warner alone, retail and kitchen, I wouldn't say they probably have about 50 to 60 employees. Rock Center, about the same. Um, essentially multiply that by five, and that's... <laughs> somebody's better at math than I am, but yes, that's, that's essentially so much, what it is.
0: That's a big umbrella.
2: Um, so, and it's nice. I get to go to the other property, the West coast properties go about four times a year. So, um, just a touch base. Each location has its own pastry chef. Um, so they have that nice support out there and it's really good. Cause then I can just reach out to them and, you know, have a nice support system at each location. So it's uh it's more manageable than maybe somebody would think. I don't have, you know, essentially multiple hundreds of people contacting me, <laughs> asking for advice. um, but it is. It's, it's definitely a, a big task for sure. But I love it. It's a, yeah.
0: With the holidays coming up, I guess, I mean, you sort of have to do special stuff. So oh, you're absolutely. doing a Thanksgiving thing.
2: Pies for sure.
0: Buche de Noël for Christmas. Buche de
2: Noël's for sure. Um, so pies we're doing, apple, pecan, and pumpkin. Um, and then for Christmas, we have our chocolate, chocolate. Chocolate, Bush Noel. It's a triple chocolate modern. It's got dark chocolate, manjari mousse, um, black chocolate cake on the inside, salted caramel. It's heavenly. And then we're doing a sort of a more old-fashioned rolled one. That's a you know a hazelnut cake, and it has a coffee buttercream, um, crushed candied hazelnuts inside. So that's delicious. Gingerbread people. Um, Decorated all cute with a little scarf you know super no super it's beautiful so it's beautiful I mean your
0: pastry <laughs> I mean it's one of those as an industry lifer like when I see quality it just puts a smile like you you go to that little display case at Time Warner and you just go fuck yeah that shit's just
2: I appreciate it. Yeah, no. we, we try hard. It, it looks great. Everything tastes great. It's, really
0: tastes so. great. it's I'm, Years and years ago, we used to stay at a little hotel in Paris. It was cheap. Uh, it was on the right bank, right around the corner from Place de Madeleine. It was uh, Rue, Rue de Cés. The address was César Rue de César. Um But it was around the corner from Fauchon. So I, we would get up early and we would watch them set up the... This was when... when um, um, uh, uh, what's his name? The the who was it? Come on, I'm terrible. Pierre E he, Pierre Hermé was a pastry chef, yes. right? So it was the '80s, and it was just it was like because wh- there was nothing like this in America, and we just see this pastry coming yeah. out like what the f? Like the most like everything was out of a book, yeah. perfect, 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 and you guys are nailing
2: it. Yeah, thank you. And that's that's what you know. It's true. You see these things in other countries, and you're like, God, why don't we have that here? And I'm just excited that we're actually able to bring some of that here. Because
0: of people like you, people like Thomas, from the top down, a great organization. Thanks so much for coming on. Alessandra, otherwise, Ali. Altieri, um, the head pastry chef for all of the Bouchons around the country. If you haven't been, go. It's one of the America's great, great, great pastry kitchens. Thanks
2: for having me. Thanks
0: for coming up. we we'll take a quick break and then I've got a couple of chefs coming on who are going to talk about what they do in Midtown in the space of Italian food. So stay tuned for that right after this. Folks well, my here everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients and these days we have so many options to choose from well I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after a under- and funders. Why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home? that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzze, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here. So there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So if you listen to the show, you know I am a wine lover. We get sommeliers here all the time. We get winemakers. I've been drinking wine with dinners since before most of you were born. And when you think of the great wine regions of the world, I mean, what comes to mind? Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Piedmont? Yeah, okay. Well, I just got back from Bordeaux. Was there for the crush for the 2015 harvest. And I was thrilled to see, A, how the city of Bordeaux has transformed itself. It's so alive. It's so beautiful. And the region itself is crazy. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons who are coming in, and they're not making your grandfather's Bordeaux anymore. Young farmers, young vignerons that have been there for generations, that know the soil, that know the grapes. And what grapes are we talking about? Mm, you know, we're pretty familiar here. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, all of those grapes find themselves in these blends. But the new style of Bordeaux wines are super fresh, super young, super clean, meant to be consumed now, not cellared for decades because really, who has a cellar? The whites are super great. I think they're super undervalued and appreciated. Sémillon, Sauvignon Blanc, Crisp dry. All stainless. If there's a little oak integration, you barely feel it. And the reds come in all sorts of styles. You know, the left bank is a little more cabernet. So we know having a little more structured, a little more tannic, the right bank with more Merlot tends to be fruity, a little more opened up, receives you a little bit easier. But if you've been walking past that Bordeaux aisle in your wine store, stop and grab a bottle from 15 to $35 is some of the best value on planet Earth. With wines that are growing in one of the great wine regions, vignerons that are passionate, they know what they're doing. Give Bordeaux a second shot. I love the wines. Hey Folks, welcome back. Mike Colameco here, segment number 3 today's show. I'm so happy to have here in the studio with me uh, the team behind a couple of great restaurants in New York City, Il Gatto Pardo, which has been around for a while. Uh, it's in the old Rockefeller Mansion on 54th Street right behind MoMA. Beautiful dining room, great food. Um, Gianfranco Sorrentino is the owner. His chef is with us, Vito. Always a pleasure. Hi. Always a pleasure. Um, and uh, a, a more recent restaurant in their portfolio is the Old Cathedis Artiste. Now it's called The Leopard. Um, it's 67th Street in, of course, that gorgeous building, steps off Central Park. Michele Brogioni? How do you pronounce your name, sir? Yeah, Brogioni. Brogioni. Hi. You're the second chef there. Um, I think I was there in September or during the summer. I had a great meal. Anyway, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Um I'll start with you, Jean-Franco. Talk to me about what got you into the restaurant business and background. I mean, you're from just outside of Naples. Uh,
4: no, I am from Naples. From Naples. Naples, uh, Naples uh, City. Uh, well, I started 14 years old. I started to work as, uh, we say, a uh, commie or busboy. I used to work in the summer to pay my studies. I, I worked in... Uh, in uh, Cabri, I started to work there. Then, at 17 years old, I moved to England. I started to work in the Dorchester, another hotel there. I worked in Germany, in France, in Spain, in Greece. Uh, then, uh, I worked in uh, also the Four season in Tokyo. And uh, then, I moved to uh, to New York. Uh, in New York, I worked uh, as a waiter. I worked with um, Mickey Mouse at Epcot Center. Um, And uh, then I moved to New York Uh, I was manager for Beach Mm. Uh, Then I opened up my first uh, restaurant in the Museum of Modern Art I was very lucky that the board of trustees trust me and uh, we opened up at Sette MoMA, which was in 1991, and I think it was, uh, for me, an incredible experience. I still remember very well the day that we opened up. I went to the old MoMA, I took the Philip Johnson staircase, I turned left, it was the Starry Night by Van Gogh, then the Water Lily, I opened up my restaurant, and I saw the menu, and I saw the... Um, parmigiana di zucchine, the mozzarella in carrozza, linguina alle vongole. And i start to laugh. I said, "Look, where are we now? <laughs> you know, in the museum of modern art." Uh, then, uh, after MoMA in uh, 2001, we open up. Uh, me and Vito, we open up uh, uh, Il Gatto Pardo, 33 West 54th Street. We open up September 18, 2001, one week after the tragedy of the Twin Towers. It was a tough time. Uh, very tough. I remember for days and days I was outside looking for people. No one car was passing by, no one person was passing by. But uh, slowly, slowly, New York picked it up. We made it and uh, we became busy, busy and busier. Uh, and then uh, four and a half years ago, we opened up um, uh, the Leopard at the in
0: uh, one of the iconic places of New York, the... Uh, former Café des Artistes. And you and it's landmark, so you had to preserve things, get permit all the way, clean off that, because Café des Artistes went way, way back. And, I mean, uh, shit, when I got to New York in 1982, it had been here a long time then, and that was when you <laughs> could smoke in restaurants. And that place, oh, so they had the beautiful painting, and it was literally, yeah. like, smoke stained. It was, like, one of those old, you can't fake that. And to clean that, I mean, that, that took you guys, that was, like, a whole separate budget that you probably hadn't anticipated. Exactly.
4: We have an insurance only for the murals. We don't own them anyway uh, from 1924 by Chandler Christie yeah. And I remember after we finished the renovation, well, before the demolition, we had to box the murals, a special company Uh, for a restoration company. They came, they made custom-made boxes to preserve the the, the murals. Once we finished and we had the tablecloths set up on the tables, we were ready to go. We were paying the rent. Those two ladies, they came to clean up the murals. they scaffolding all around with a small brush and a small piece of uh, uh, cottonwood. They start to clean it up. They took four weeks. And I was thinking, I'm paying the rent. I won't open up. Please, do fast. But they did an incredible job. You know they are more beautiful than ever. Uh, actually, the first reaction of people when they came in, people that they, they saw the murals before and then after, they thought that we paint on top, mm. you know, but because they're so bright, yeah, they,
0: they're bright, they came to life. Nikola, yeah. how did you how did you come to join the company? Where were you just prior to this? If you don't mind me asking, just uh, yeah, we the met
5: uh, with Gianfranco We have a common friends. I was in the city for a different company, for a Russian company where I used to work for thirteen years. And I was thinking with my wife, with the kids, to stay in the city. And uh, I was start to look around uh, what's going on. If I can find someone, some place in the city. And uh, through a common friend, uh, I met Gianfranco and Vito, and uh, we start to talk together about the leopard, des artist. That they would love to change some things. So I was ready to this new challenge, and uh, we find a common uh, common goal. So to to bring uh, new light on this place that we deserve it. And I think that we are starting to make an, a pretty good job.
0: Yeah, it's a gra- I mean, it's a neighborhood institution. Again, you're around the yeah, corner from is. Lincoln Center, Café are I mean, that artiste location has been sort of yeah, the so hub of the heart go. of the Upper yeah, West, yeah, West course, Side for a course. long time.
5: We have a nice client. It's wonderful place uh, and, uh, honestly, a wonderful company that's so, so close, so friendly, so...
0: And how would you describe the food because I, I, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouths I mean you're the chef de cuisine you clearly sat down with Jean Franco and Vito to talk about the concept but regional Italian southern italian what, what, what would it uh, be, if you a, had to put an, I would italian. say
5: that eighty five percent is from south of Italy, but the first our main main reason is to have a to respect the product. So mm-hmm. we, we brought uh, all the nicest products that we can find from Italy, from the American market. But most of all, we brought from Italy. We try to respect the products as soon as possible, as, as we can, as the Italian kitchen is. So work on the product, uh, yeah. not to be not too fancy, but just work on the flavor to respect the season of the product and change the menu as often as we can. Uh, and to brought a piece of Italy on the, on the plate.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of Italian cuisine is it's ingredient-driven. It's not so much technique-driven. I mean, yeah, I think it's the less you play with things, sometimes the better off you are with, yeah. with great ingredients. Anyway. Yeah, we, we try to make. It. Vito, you've been quiet the whole time here. <laughs> oh, I think so. <laughs> okay, like don't this. fall asleep on us. You can't do that. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know you're not cooking. You're probably thinking about service, getting back tonight. Yeah. So you're, yeah. fr- you're from outside of, of Naples.
3: I am from Salerno, Salerno. from Cilento. the co- coastal Cilento. Cilento is a beautiful area yeah. from uh, Salerno. Uh, it's a national park. And uh, it's a lar- uh, that's where the Dieta Mediterranea was born, where they find it. Uh, Cilento, Charoli, Pioppi, that's the the origin of the Dieta Mediterranea. And uh, that's where I'm from. And you're, you know, What I I think what I
0: like about you the most and there's a lot to like your food speaks for itself is you really seem to be like a chef-chef you enjoy what you're doing like you get up in the morning and get to work and it strikes me unless you're really good at faking it that you're really happy being in the kitchen that's just what you want to do
3: well uh, if you do it with a pleasure with respect I think at the end of the day when you go home you feel uh, satisfied you respect what you do and uh, respect the customer. Customer, they come uh, to eat, and you want to make sure they're happy when they leave the door. They they leave with a smile on the door. And then when you succeed, and then when you feel better, and then the day after it makes even willing to wake up even earlier than that. To go, to go to work. Yeah, no, I'm got. I mean, he, he
0: could see. I've, I've, we've filmed you for the PBS show. I spent some time in the kitchen with you. I've been a guest at the restaurant numerous times. And it just really seems like, you know these days these young kids I don't even know why they go into the business sometimes you know they're playing around with their smartphones and they're distracted and they're like you're in the fucking kitchen like put, put <laughs> that thing away you idiot like just you could always be doing a better job concentrating on the food but it's like all these people get into it for like all kind of the wrong reasons in a way um, and then I see a guy like you that's just so old school that just is you're in your whites you're happy in the kitchen yes. you're happy the cooks are happy it's like it's the whole thing down the line and you guys have been together for how many years? Uh, probably over 25 years Sometimes, Sometimes you go I the beach.
3: Oh yes, since exactly. May '91. Yeah, that's why I met So, name Jeff so uh,
4: you know uh, what uh, I like to say that I spend with him more time than I spend with my wife and my kids. Anyway, but you know what he said is very true. I mean. Uh, it's the respect of what you do, the passion you put in it. Um, our motto is passion is our main ingredients, you know. We have to enjoy, and all our staff has to enjoy what they're doing. And they have to be proud of what they're doing. Anyway. And that's, for me, the hospitality, anyway.
0: And you're, as, as a patron, as an owner, you're back and forth between the restaurants. You're in the front of the house. Uh, you've got a really strong front of the house, I think, because of that. Because it's not like you're at home at night at 5 o'clock uh, watching the news or, uh, you know, ordering takeout. You're a, you're a hands-on owner.
4: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I enjoy what I'm doing. You know, my my usually life is 8 o'clock, take the kids to school, then I go to Gattopardo. You know, I stay there until late 9 o'clock, and then I take my Vespa, and I go to Leopard and see what they're doing. By the way, you know that we open up another restaurant, which was the former uh, Gattopardo. Pardon Correct, down the street vino. from you, which is a,
0: a more casual
4: version. Correct. And, uh, and the name is? Mozzarella Vino. 54th it, it, Street again. 33 West 54th Street. Yeah. Uh, so I pass by, I check it out, mozzarella Vino, then I go to Leopard, etc. And then about 10, 11 o'clock, I am home when the kids, they are sleeping.
0: And how would you describe the food at Gattopardo in your words? Because right. obviously you and Vito work hand in hand. The menu yeah. changes. We have new seasonal things that are constantly popping uh-huh. in and out. Um, but how would you describe the general vision of the restaurant? Uh,
4: okay, J- already the name uh, means a lot for us. Il Gattopardo is uh, the, the the symbol of Sicily in the seventeenth century you know, the uh, the regno delle due Sicilia, il Gattopardo Sicily, regno delle due Sicilia, Napoli capitale, and was uh, the Campania, uh, Puglia, Basilicata, Calabria, Sicilia, Sardegna. So we take inspiration from this region for our menu. When we met me and Vito, the the idea was to cook as our grandmother used to do. Of course, looking now's day, my grandmother couldn't afford the extra virgin olive oil, $200 for half a liter, which we don't do anyway. But, you know, checking better the the ingredients. As uh, Michele said, uh, Vito, in the between, we were at Settemoma and... uh, uh, Gatto Pardo. he went back to it to opened up an uh, agriturismo where he had a few rooms and uh, he used to have uh, land where he had uh, zucchini, egg cow co- uh, you know, capretti, etc. So he has an, and Michele today have an incredible respect for the materia prima for the ingredients, for the product. As you say, the, the Italian cuisine is uh, ingredient driven against the French cuisine which is more uh, cooking style and technique. more technique it's exactly. Technique. So if you don't have the right ingredients you don't know you don't make Italian cuisine anyway.
0: Yeah that was always one of the like this sort of I mean the ingredients now in America have gotten so much better in the last twenty, thirty years. Um, oh, yeah, but I think one of the disappointments of traveling through Italy as you would eat these wonderful meals and you'd come home and you'd try to replicate them and like, you know, the zucchini that someone picked that morning from their garden or the wild fennel that's growing in Sicily in season or the sardines that were caught right at the peak. Like, you can't, we didn't have those so you'd try and make this Italian food back in New York and it would just taste like shit most of the time because I mean, it, it, was, it was really simple math you know if you start with one and add one you don't end up going too far but if you have amazing porcini amazing whatever yes. amazing those little vongole, you get all those little tiny ones used to get along the coast for the, uh, the Amalfi coast you know yes. for the clams or you know, or the tomatoes that you see in the south I remember the first time I mm. was, in, was in Sarno and I saw this San Marzano the little farms and the, what that tomato looked like on the vine and then looked at the soil with the volcanic soil and then the water table I'm like it's yeah. obvious, man. Of course. Yeah, this is really simple. It's like yeah, it's exactly. just. And I have to say, kudos to you too. Uh, the wine list, are great at your restaurant. So you're really. Thank you. Are you involved? Do you have a wine guy? Yes. Or you... uh, no, no. I am
4: involved in the wine uh, list for the three restaurants. Of course, when. Uh, uh, when uh, we change the menus with Michele and with Vito, uh, oh. we sit down, we taste the the, the 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 new dishes, and we start to drink some wines and see how we pair them. You know We talk about that, and at the end, of course, if we have some kind of uh, not the same idea, you know I am the boss, I decide anyway, <laughs> but uh, uh, is a, a team job anyway with the manager and the
0: chefs. So I mean, both of these restaurants, and well, the third one we don't have the chef here, but the it's. I mean, I think we think of Italian food in New York in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's certainly. I mean, Michael White has his own little mini empire, and I think that it was a point sort of in the late '90s and aughts when Italian food really overtook French in terms of popularity and respect. um, I mean, hell, it was a time... Were you here when Brian Miller was a food critic? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I, really... I when Brian it, Miller yeah. was a critic, I, like, I don't care how good your food was, if you got two stars running an Italian restaurant and you kissed the ground you walked on, because he just had a bias towards French food. <laughs> and the kind of New York did, too. But, yeah. I, but what I love about your restaurants is they're just really homages to how great Italian food can be yeah. in in an old-world way. And you used to talk about, like, grandmother style. It's, it's not like the fancy, tweezer-y, new-age stuff. You've got chefs that are hands-on that do great work, great ingredients. It's just... They're just great ways to experience great Italian cuisine in New York at either the Leopard or Pardo. Yes. So hats off to you guys You're doing a Thank great, you. great, great job. Thank so you've been six months at the Leopard Cafe at, at Artiste?
5: Yeah, I'm the newest one in the company. I'm the young one. Oh.
0: <laughs> is, he, is he 21 yet? Is he? <laughs> I wish. Maybe. I wish. I would like to. <laughs> Guys, thanks for coming in on this kind of rainy, balmy, 60-degree Thursday here. No, but really keep up with what you're doing. I love the restaurants. got the Bardo, 54th Street, right behind MoMA. Just super, super old school, super delicious. And by old school, I mean that in the best of, of ways. It's just a menu that's familiar and delicious and, and delivers on the promise. And... uh been to the Leopard have one meal there with you I'm sure it's going to be great you have tons of talent and keep up the great work with, with thank all you your very spots. much thank you so much. great thank you. places in New York for Italian meal with great wine and and this thing called Great Service, because that's something that's really kind of waning these days. You know, the whole as I sit here at Roberta's like they get me started <laughs> on service in, in Williamsburg, because they don't really it doesn't exist. But that's it's a new generation, let them play by their own rules. Yeah. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Take care. Thank you for having me. Stay guys. tuned next week. We've got another show before Thanksgiving, and you'll find out who the guests are by um, tuning in next week. See you then. Thank you, guys. Oh, oh,
3: oh.